This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fenway Rundown. Thursday, September 21st, I'm Chris Cotillo, home from Texas, Sean McAdam alongside to wrap up what really was a meaningless road trip for the Red Sox and to look ahead, talk about the GM search, just kind of catch up after what has been um, seven days of craziness in the Red Sox world. We had an emergency pod last Thursday when Bloom was fired. We had Alex Cora on the show for a brief but interesting conversation Tuesday. If you haven't heard that yet, check it out. Um, I just saw them play in Texas three straight days, and by that I mean I watched a few pitches here and there because there was really not much to report on on the field, a couple things, um, but not much in, in the way of really interesting Red Sox stuff happening on the field. Sean, I will start with you here. If you have any sort of impressions from this road trip or takeaways or things that you thought um, were interesting, have at it because I am pretty close to having zero. Good to think that our money was well spent sending you to Texas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we got the core I, interview, so that counts. That's true. I, I would say uh, I had more takeaways from Toronto than Texas because in Toronto, they finally got the thing that they had been searching for for most of the season and certainly in the second half, and that is quality starts from their starting pitchers. And while everybody says that that is the area that has to be addressed first and foremost this offseason, I don't disagree with that. It's obvious anybody who watched five games this year would come away with that same uh, with, with that same takeaway. But the, the ironic thing was they finally got three very good starting pitching performances in Toronto and still lost all three. Uh, mostly because they were horrible, and I mean horrendous with a capital H, when it came to hitting with the runners in scoring position. The, the, mm-hmm. the numbers were just god-awful for those three games in Toronto. Uh, they were well under 200 in terms of team batting average with the runners in scoring position, had all kinds of opportunities to score and didn't, and lost three games, two of them by walk-off. So uh, while I, I don't think that it changes my view of what their priority should be, it was illuminating to kind of notice that at least this late in the season, it isn't just the starting pitching, although that's primarily the big hole here, but there are other issues as well. I think the offense is is generally good enough going forward, but it certainly wasn't in those three games in Toronto against the Jays. Yeah, and I'll take Texas because I did not watch a second of the Toronto series as I went to Chapel Hill and watched the fighting Tar Heels with a big win over Minnesota. But in Texas, I was paying attention. And hey, look, I think it's, you know, uh, they get a win, a nice kind of come from behind win in the first game. The next two don't go their way. I think you know, Tanner Houck, uh, we were joking, Pete Abe and, and Alex Spear were both there. We were talking, I don't have it in front of me exactly, but Tanner Houck's line was like four plus innings, four hits, three runs, four walks, four strikeouts. And I was like, can we just put, I should be able to put this in the book before he starts. You know, like that's his, that's his line almost every time he goes out. And at some point they need him to get over the hump. I know you wrote that as your uh, notebook a couple weeks ago about him and Whitlock, you know, Whitlock 
I know how had the comebacker and stuff. Um, you know, Whitlock still, for m- the most part, has looked really good out of the bullpen, and still, you know, we've seen that time and time again. I think how you know comebacker aside and that time off aside has been one of the more disappointing Red Sox this year. And you know, to think about Cutter Crawford being ahead of him now in the pecking order, and I think by a lot, you would never have expected that heading into the year. Winkowski too in a different role. Uh, I think you know Hauk has been. You know, he had a really, you know, good first couple of years in the majors, really successful. I think he, he, I think he projects as a reliever as does Whitlock, but that's a conversation for another day. I thought yesterday's performance, a 15, five loss, not going to use the word embarrassing because I think the 2020 Red Sox set the standard for that. And we watched that every day for two months, but just like, you know, what is the point of this? You know, like it looked like a team that had completely checked out, um, you know, they get up to that 4-0 lead, Duvall homers, Dahlbeck homers, and then, you know, Bayo, for whatever reason, gets absolutely shelled. I know day games have been an issue. We wrote about that last night. But just, you know, like, is it 15-5? to Is it 30-5? to Who cares? Who knows? The Rangers are in it. it. It's one of those complete, you know, garbage time, meaningless games, and um, they just did not show up. And, and I think that, you know, it's probably tough for them to show up at this point with the White Sox coming into town and the Red Sox are out of it and the GM or chief baseball officers fired. I understand that, but um, quality of play these last couple of weeks, I think yesterday was their 11th loss in 14 um, or something like that. Like it's, it's kind of cratered pretty quick. And so the question I'll throw back on you and, and I have um, a thought on this that's different than Definitely what some people have written, including Dan Shaughnessy this week. Two things. Does getting over 500 matter? And does being in last place in the American least matter? Well, I would say somewhat. I mean, you you don't want the ignominious distinction of finishing in last place three times in four years. Excuse me. Which is where they're headed uh, if they don't uh, go on a, a little bit of a run here over these final nine games. You would think they would want to avoid that embarrassment Uh, I think if you asked players and coaches and even Alex Cora they might shrug and say hey just trying to finish strong and play well over the last week and a half but you would think you would like to avoid having that label slapped on you last place again losing record again especially when that did not seem to be an option as recently as three or four weeks ago it looked like the Yankees had kind of sewn up last place, but then they came in and took three out of four from the Red Sox in that rainy week from hell. And ever since then, they've passed them. And it now it's kind of an like... ox. Hold on, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? What's that? Rainy week from hell. I feel like in hell, it probably doesn't doesn't rain much, so there wouldn't be all the fire, right? Oh, we'll we'll make a meteorological podcast after this, but I think it's more uh, religious studies. I, I... I, I would think that they would want to avoid that embarrassing tag to this season, whether they do or not. Uh, you know, they do have three games, as you mentioned, against a lousy White Sox team that has not played with any focus, uh, despite the shakeups that have taken place in that organization. That's a chance to beat up on them a little bit and give you a chance to 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 play two far better teams in the final two series, Tampa Bay and Baltimore, each of whom is playing for seeding purposes. So while we had said, oh, that last series in Baltimore won't mean anything to the Orioles, it now looks like it may, uh, depending on what happens here over the next five or six days, they will be very much incentivized to keep playing hard to get a buy in that first round. This is not 
this is not where we were a few years ago where it's all about home field advantage. This is about avoiding the wild card round, which they surely would want to do and which Tampa Bay would love to do and come from behind there. So they're going to have their work cut out for them. But I wonder also, Chris, what this bad September says, if anything, uh, about Alex Cora going into the offseason. We don't know who is going to be making the the call uh, in terms of the new leader of the baseball operations department. Uh, we know that Alex Cora has a year remaining on his contract. So if somebody came in and wanted to make a change, it's not as if that was going to cost the Red Sox a ton of money to walk away from the final year of Alex Cora. I don't think anybody's putting too much emphasis on you know whether they go – 15 and 14 in September and finish at 500 or above 500. I'd be surprised if a new executive was using that um, as something to calibrate Alex Gore's future, but does it, does it reflect poorly on him that they have played so poorly in September? Yeah. I mean, I think some of this is injuries, right? Casas going down some other guys being unavailable and he's been, you know, careful with the, regulars to use a Ron Renneke term in the last couple of weeks there's been you know guys are playing less frequently wants to mix in the younger guys I know Abreu and Rafaela and some of these guys have played pretty well um I don't know why Justin Turner's still playing I think they should shut him down I mean he can't really walk I wrote about this yesterday and tweeted about the night before I think it's crazy uh, I guess my guess is that's a little tied to try to get to 100 RBI and once he gets there you might see him yeah far less makes that makes sense and you know he's a gamer and really respect kind of the effort he, he's put forward yeah i don't know about the core aspect of this it's it's you know it's hard to kind of gauge that it, you know he's pointed a billion times to that stretch where they played houston and the dodgers and ran out of pitching whether that's a shot at his now former boss or not you know he'll never admit to it but um i think the underdog shirt said it all there i do think you know and i'll i'll say you know to answer the one question that i or the two questions i posed I think that finishing above 500 matters like you want to say at the end of the year, you won more than you lost, right? Like that, I think matters a little bit. I would love for them to finish 81 and 81 because long before you were hired, when I was doing this show uh, and we did a predictions round table in spring training, I had them exactly at 81 and 81. So we don't root for much in this game, but to look that brilliant six months later, I, I would really appreciate. I do think the last place thing to me, does not matter at all. I mean, it matters, I guess, a little bit, but I think it's a completely overblown narrative just because of the way the league is set up right now. You're playing a balanced schedule. Teams are competing for the wild card. There's three wild card teams. Like, you know, they are, you know, in the middle of the pack of the American League. There's six teams that are definitely behind them, right? Cleveland, Detroit, the Angels, the White Sox, Kansas City, and Oakland. They are not, you know, um, in this case, far and away the worst team in their division they are a 500 team that has a worse record than you know three good teams and a, another mediocre team in their division i think in this case the whole last place label not great but i, I think that just to an extent it just doesn't carry the same weight as if they were you know look at the white Sox, a 58 win team at this point or whatever um the record as we've been talking all year you know there's some you know divisions in baseball and there's some places where you know they would be you know have been in the mix for most of the year um so i know if they're three games under now if they finish right around 500 probably will be in last place but to me 
It's fifth in a very, very tough division we've talked about all year, and it doesn't matter as much as probably in previous years with the schedule and everything else. Yep, and unless they run the table here, they are not going to match my wildly optimistic prediction of 83 wins that I had them for. Uh, so I'm rooting for you, pal, to hit it right on the head. Yeah, if well, you can't be right, I'd like you to be. That was a, a Boston Sports Journal prediction at the time, so um, you know it, it matters less to the, uh, the the mass live predictions. I think you know we had some had some pretty good ones. If we're going to go back and listen to that episode, Matt Votor probably correctly predicting that Gunnar Henderson will be the Rookie of the Year. I went with the wild card of my guy Zach Gallon to win the Cy Young. I don't think that's going to happen, but he put a pretty good run in and. Uh, so it'll be fun to look back at that in the next couple of weeks and, and talk about that as well. Um, let's keep talking about Alex Cora. You think that the September reflects poorly on him? I think the bigger storyline, <laughs> I, I hate to do this because he said it on our podcast. So anything that is said in the Fenway Usually rundown? everything that is said on our po- podcast, you can take to the bank. But exactly. We, it's go- we reserve the right to have a few exceptions. Right. It's usually gospel. Um We've already touched on hell and the gospel so far in the first 15 minutes of the show. Um, I just, I'm having a hard time buying the taking himself out of the running for the GM thing. I just am, you know, I like it's the right thing to say, which is weird because he didn't say the right thing on Thursday. Like he was very, very weird about it and made kind of the day even worse PR wise. But um, I think that it's just, you know, he said it in Toronto. He doubled down with kind of the same quote. The, on Tuesday's pod, you know, I'm 48. This is where I'm at. I'd like to be in the dugout. You think if John Henry and Tom Warner sit him down and say, Alex, we kind of like the idea of you moving up. He's going to say, I'm 48. I like being in the dugout. This is where I belong. No, he's going to jump. You no know? chance. Yeah. And, and my just... guess is that there was some coaching there, whether it came from ownership, whether it came from team president and CEO Sam Kennedy, whether it came from Alex's agent or people in his family saying, mm-hmm. hey, not a good look here. You don't want to be uh, coming off as ambitious at this point. Uh, you, you would do best to say, uh, you know, the timing isn't right. But, you know, this is sort of like um, a politician who is telling people that he's not going to run for president, mm-hmm. but he might leave open the possibility of accepting a draft if there is a groundswell of emotion that carries him toward the nomination. So I think that's where we are with Alex. He has publicly said, nope, not the right time for me, maybe down the road. Uh, But if he becomes the compromise candidate uh, from ownership and Sam Kennedy's job search, or after talking to uh, other candidates, they decide that they have the best guy for the job right there and at their disposal, I would not shut the door uh, firmly and securely against that. I still think it's something of a long shot, but I'm not willing to say it can't happen. That's that's where I am. Yeah, and you know, I I don't think he's the favorite by any means. I think this is starting to go, and we'll get into greater GM search stuff here in a second. But I think it's starting to go in the direction of how it went last time, where they take some big swings at the beginning, might be told no by a few people, and then they have to reassess if they do. You know, I as I said before, I think Alex Cora has the power in the organization, as we've both written about in the last week, um, to make this push if he wants it. 
And I think that if he makes a push internally, I think Tom and John would listen. I think that's just kind of the, the reality of the situation. Um, and I don't put it past Cora to, you know, I, I don't think that that's completely off the table. So as much as he said it, you know, it's an easy kind of public change to make. Uh, you know, once they, you know, they told me that I was the right guy for this and I wanted to do it and I didn't want it at first out of respect to Heim. And then all of a sudden, you know, so I wouldn't rule it out completely, but, um, you know, we appreciate the good, the, the good quotes on the pod. At about 10% now. I'll go a little higher, 15. Um, Be difficult. Yeah, splitting hairs. But, I mean, I, I just do do think that um, there's a chance. And until someone else is hired, I'll, I'll, I'll stick by that. Wider GM, um, President of Baseball Operations, Chief Baseball Officer, they, they could come up with a fourth title. You know, we there's no there's no stopping them um, because it's just all made up at this point. Um, Mike Hazen seemed to be a target. No surprise there. Um, he's had an up and down tenure in Arizona, but a pretty good team this year, a pretty good core uh, as spearheaded by. It's like how Superman's re- referenced in every Seinfeld episode. Zach Gallen must be referenced in every Fenway rundown episode. Zach Gallen. Corbin Carroll, some of these other guys uh, that have, um, you know, emerged as a pretty good young core in Arizona. They've had a very good season. Um, I think out of nowhere, they're 81 and 72. Um, and, you know, probably going to be in the playoffs as a wild card team. Hazen is a guy that the Red Sox obviously want familiarity with the organization from here. Experience in the GM chair. Derek Hall, their president, telling the Arizona Republic the other day, I haven't heard from the Red Sox yet, and I hope we don't. I want to extend Mike and keep him here. Um, it seems like there's a lot of red tape and, and hoops the Red Sox would have to jump through to get Mike Hazen to Boston, and I would put the likelihood of that way lower than 15% at this point, Sean. I don't know that I agree with you there. I, there. There certainly are obstacles, and in my mind, there are two. You just spoke of one. He's under contract with the Diamondbacks for another year. If they want to dig their heels in, and look at this as some big market team trying to poach our executive. They don't have to give him uh, that permission. You get into the whole matter of job titles. Mm-hmm. He is vice president of uh, baseball operations there, whether the Red Sox could create some title that would serve as a promotion that would make it easier uh, for them to uh take him away and the Diamondbacks not stand in his way. That's one issue. The second is a personal one for Mike, who, if you don't know, Mike lost his wife, Nicole, uh, about a year ago to cancer. And he has four young boys that he is now raising as a single dad. They were all born in Massachusetts, uh, as Mike was. Um, but they have kind of grown up over the last six or seven years in Arizona. And how would he look at that impact of moving back to Massachusetts on them? They've been through a lot, obviously losing their mom at a young age. And would it be a good thing to bring uh, those boys back to Massachusetts to be perhaps closer to other family members? Or have they now settled in and and are comfortable there and this would be a disruption to an already traumatic time in their lives those are personal things that mike has to determine um so there's two huge obstacles but in a lot of ways 
He checks all the boxes. He's got plenty of ties to the Red Sox. He understands the market. He knows people in baseball ops from Brian O'Halloran, if he returns, Eddie Ramiro, others. These are all people he's worked with in the past. He knows ownership. He's got a familiarity. He's done a good job there. He's been the number one guy making the decisions for the Diamondbacks. You talked about Gallon and Carroll as two big moves that he has spearheaded. So there's a lot to like there, but there are also two significant obstacles. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as I said, it's time for the big swings, whether it be trying for him or David Forst or Chris Antonetti or some of these people, and then, you know, looking into that secondary pool of people who are definitely available, whether that be a number two somewhere like Haim was, maybe a Brandon Gomes from the Dodgers. Um, another interesting name that has come up, Kim Ang, in the last few days. I believe her contract is up with the Marlins. Um, that's somebody who, stellar reputation across the game, experience in the big chair, and I think somebody that if she is available and not extended by Miami, the Red Sox would probably talk to as well. Yeah, I would think so too. And don't forget that she also has extensive uh, number of years and service with the Yankees and mm -hmm. the Dodgers, two big market teams who spend a lot of money, who has been exposed to that big market environment, not Miami, obviously, but in LA and New York, and also some time in the commissioner's office. So she's well-respected throughout the game, has a ton of different experience at different levels, is well thought of, has done a pretty good job putting the Marlins back in contention. Uh, so I would keep an eye on that name as well. Uh, they, I was watching Sports Center the other night because there was not much in the way of interesting TV at the Sheridan in Arlington. And uh, they mentioned that this would be the second. I guess it makes sense if you think about it, but just the second time in 20 years the Marlins have made the postseason. Not a little bit crazy. I know they have the two yeah, titles. One of so. them was the expanded postseason field of 2020, which almost right. doesn't count. So um, I mean, yeah. Well, that's I mean, that team crazy has run. been all or nothing in its all in its entire history for right. the longest time. The only two times they made the postseason was when they won the World Series. You know, they either get in and run the table or don't get in at all, and that's kind of been their history over thirty plus years. It's like the Red Sox now, right? <laughs> that would be Basically. a smooth transition then. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I think those are two two names. As I said, we're in the big swing piece of this puzzle, you know, and I think last time it never really circulated exactly how many big swings they made before Heim. Um, they kind of made it seem like Heim was their first choice based on he was the one interview they did. Let's couch that with he was the one guy who agreed to interview. I think they looked at Derek Falvey for sure, a Fenway rundown alum, we'll note, um, and probably a couple others. I'm trying to think of the other names that they probably oh, Cincinnati. Chris yeah. Antonetti declined to interview uh, as well. We, we don't know how many more, mm -hmm. if at all, uh, but we know those are two, I mean, from the same tree too, because Derek Falvey right. was once with Cleveland, but both of those gentlemen uh, declined opportunities to interview. And, and as I've, I'm sure uh, they made a run at Hazen then as well. Uh, could very well have been. So that's, I think the point that they're at right now. And um Big swing time, and they have time. You know, I think how many how many openings are there? Just them at this point, right? I mean, the the Tigers filled their GM under Harris today, so I I think you know, we might see some more in the next couple oh, weeks. Yeah, we, but... we, right. We, there may be a kind of bloody Monday where some people are are fired. Uh, although when you look around, 
it's hard to know exactly what GMs might be in trouble. A lot of franchises that you might think, like Colorado, they seem to be incredibly patient there. Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago has already made its change in season. So uh, the White Sox I'm referring to, so there will not right. be one there. Um, I, 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 you know, there's a relatively new guy in Kansas City who's not going to get fired. Yep. Uh, it does not seem as if A.J. Preller is going to pay for the Padres very disappointing season mm -hmm. um would think that ben charrington made enough progress during the year that yep. he's okay in pittsburgh so rizzo yeah. was rizzo was extended right in washington right. so like there's a lot of these kind of looking at the american league you know oakland they're safe forever chicago as you mentioned kansas city angels i mean who knows what the hell they're ever well, doing so mean, they're almost in their own little classification <laughs> given how dysfunctional yeah. that place is right Cashman seems safe, I guess. So uh, yes, there's not really, question. there's not really uh, a lot of potential openings, which you know is good for the Red Sox, and um, because they can kind of look at this field and have it all to themselves. We'll we'll close with this. Red Sox are off today on a Thursday. Have three games against the White Sox, which should be real riveting stuff. To say the iPad will be out watching college football on Saturday and NFL on Sunday would be the understatement of the century. Um, that's always a good thing to tell your technically your boss right yeah, I was going to say, I, uh, never mind me how about the people listening who are saying well i can't trust anything he's going to write over the next three i days. mean we're just hey we're, we're in the clubhouse gathering feature stuff and and really doing some deep dives the games are inconsequential so that's reflected yeah, in the yeah. coverage um three against the white Sox, which should be riveting then two against tampa bay tuesday wednesday they will close down fenway for the year at that point um start getting ready for the uh, Fenway Bowl in December, which, uh, barring a massive collapse, the Tar Heels will stave off yet again. And then uh, close with four in Baltimore, where our wonderful Chris Smith will be covering the team. Nine to go. Red Sox are three games under 500. What are you looking for, Sean McAdam, in these last nine games of a lost season? Well, I, I think you want to get a look at, in particular, more of a look at both Rafaela and Abreu. To me, you got to have at least one of them, if not both, in the lineup almost every day. There's a limit to how much you can gain from watching games in September. Mm -hmm. Bad time to evaluate players, but you want to expose them to as many situations as possible. Rafaela had the unfortunate incident in Toronto where misjudging a relatively uh, uh, routine fly ball line drive cost the Red Sox a game Saturday. We know that he has good defensive instincts, is regarded as a plus defender, both in the infield and outfield. So that's something of an aberration. But the more reps, the more innings, the more plate appearances you can get them, the better off their position to be to compete for a roster spot next spring. And, you know, and the same thing with some of the younger arms. Uh, you know, I, after the disastrous start on Wednesday in Arlington, you'd like to see Bayo be able to rebound from that and have... Uh, what will probably be his last start, um, I would guess, would be in the Tampa series. Mm -hmm. You'd want that to be a good one to wrap up the year. And so he goes home on a high note. Uh, take a look at some of the younger arms again in the bullpen. But really keep everybody healthy, give the young guys more playing time, and get this over with as soon as possible. I think it's important for Chris Sale to finish strong. We'll see him tomorrow night um, on a, the last Friday Fenway of the year against his former team. And then I guess doing the math, he will probably pitch that opener in Baltimore, assuming they don't start shutting these starters down. They really don't have anybody else to throw. So, um, you know, 
Kyle Baraclaw is not walking through that door again. Although uh, we should point out that that has not stopped them before. No, <laughs> it is not. It is not. That's why the words Dermody and Bearclaw have been mentioned on this podcast throughout the year. Um, I think Sale, you know, to finish strong, he was good in Toronto over the over the weekend. Um, as we talked about, there's you can't even really trust him for anything next year, but just to have him finish strong, be healthy heading into the offseason, I think is important. Um, and so we'll be watching that over his probably two outings. I agree on Bayo to finish strong after yesterday. That was kind of a weird aberration. He's pitching at night on Tuesday night, so that should help him. Um, Although it's an hour earlier. I'm not sure how that's going to play. Uh, well, he pitched a 6 o'clock game against the Marlins and uh, carried a no-hitter into like the 7th. So um, against a Florida team, these are all things that, you know, when you really look at the splits, Florida team, an aquatic animal, 6 o'clock start. You can't, I mean... That's we don't give out betting tips on this show, but that's pretty damn close. Um, he should shove on Tuesday, and then we get to uh, Baltimore, and uh, I think at that point that'll be purely playing out the string. Um, don't expect much in the way of news, but Mass Live will have it all covered. Some end of season wrap stuff. We have some stories on the pad, as they say, um, uh, different things and, and different kind of big picture looks at some of the guys' seasons and the future and all of that. So this has been a Thursday Fenway Rundown. We'll be back Tuesday with another episode. And always thanks for listening. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.